My name is David Hershkovitz. I'm the founder of Paper Magazine, and this is Light Culture. Listen, learn, and stay ahead of the curve as I knock heads with cultural disruptors of the past, present, and future. Light Culture is brought to you by Burb, the Vancouver-based cannabis brand. Denise Ariana Perez is an artist for our times. Caribbean-born, based in Copenhagen, Denmark, she embraces a commercial and artistic practice that includes being a copywriter for a branding agency, as well as personal work in the medium of photography. She uses words and imagery as a way to tell a story that's greater than any individual shot she may take with her camera. Her art photography tends to focus on Afro communities and other marginalized groups that she feels inspired by and connected to. This can range from Italian men in suits to African albinos. With social justice for women, Afro, and LGBTQ communities at the top of the art world agenda, she's in sync with what's going on in the mind of creatives wherever they may be based. So, welcome, Denise. Well, thank you for having me. I'd like to know a little bit about your story. A woman from the Caribbean, I believe the Dominican Republic originally, who wound up living in Copenhagen, which is not typically a destination for, for at least as far as I know, because I live in the Lower East Side of New York, where I know there are a lot of Dominicans here. This is where traditionally people have been coming. So how did you get there? Tell me a little bit about your journey. Well, I've lived a very nomadic life, I would say. My parents would tell you I'm a very unconventional, very untropical Dominican-born person. <laughs> I've lived in different places. I've, I left very young. I moved when I was about 17, then I moved to Switzerland, then I moved to, to New York. That's where I went to college. I worked there for a bit, and then I moved to Stockholm in Sweden. And I then went to a very alternative school, a digital media school that meets a hippie cult, if we were to describe it in a way. I ended up in Copenhagen, and I'm soon moving to Barcelona, actually. Wow. Next month. Yeah, that is uh, the summary of my journey so far. The nomadic life is something that suits you, I, I suppose? You're not really looking to put down roots anywhere? Well, I think roots are an abstract concept. I think I'm not necessarily interested in traditional roots. You can grow a single root somewhere. I think you can connect to different places in different ways for different amounts of time and in different phases in your life. I don't know if I'll be somewhere else for 10 years next. I just know that as long as it feels right and as long as I'm learning, that becomes the space for that period of time. So it's not like I'm escaping around. It's more of finding contrast and learning from it and, and what plays allows me to pursue certain pursuits that I'm interested in. So what was it about Copenhagen that attracted you there initially? As I mentioned before, I was in Stockholm and I'm super thankful for the school that I went to there. It is very out there and it's very non-traditional form of education. 
So they have like no teachers, no grades. You only work in teams. You never work alone. And it's like truly diverse and international. And people have a 30H difference in one class. It's like a creative lab. But as much as I loved being in that school specifically, and then I spent a couple of years in Stockholm, I just knew that I was ready to move on. And Copenhagen was a more suited middle ground for me. It feels like the child of Stockholm and Berlin if they had a baby. It was a little bit more down to earth than Stockholm. And that's how I ended up here. And then I had a job offer here and then I moved. Oh, so the job offer, is that what I was referring to earlier as a copywriter, which is something that you put front and center on your bio? Yeah, well, I was working for Vice in Stockholm, which then turned into Vice Scandinavia. So then I just transfer from one office to the other, basically, as a senior copywriter. Right. But, you know, artists traditionally have like their side hustle, which might be copywriter, as you have it, or some other job that's working for the man, (laughs) as opposed to doing your own thing. But you don't seem to have any self-consciousness about that because people are sometimes afraid, at least in the U.S., where most of my contacts are in the art world. If they're doing something else, they won't be taken seriously as an artist. Oh, I don't care about those things. (laughs) (laughs) I, I really don't. I think, if anything, I function very much from both sides of my brain. I'm an extremely rational person. And I think that... I have artistic tendencies, yes, but um, I wouldn't necessarily catalog myself as either. I actually enjoy having to find structures through writing to solve problems. It's like utilizing another medium in a commercial sense, but I do think that there's a potential to create meaningful commercial work. I don't think that they need to be exclusive. And I think that's a bigger challenge, trying to bring substance into brands or commercial endeavors, or it doesn't have to be a commercial brand. It could be an NGO. And it's another way of helping them aesthetically and the way that they communicate. And I think that's super interesting. It doesn't have to be exclusively, oh, I am creating for something completely superficial or void of substance. So that's something that matters to you. If you would take on a client or an account, that would be important to you to make sure that you are able to get some of your vision into whatever the content that you're creating. Oh, yes. I will challenge them for sure. (laughs) You say meaningful commercial work, which is a very interesting way of, of thinking about it because so much of what's happened in the corporate world is moving in that direction, not necessarily because they wanted to, but because they have to, given the world that we're in right now with so many people demanding equality, respect, social justice, it fits your sensibility as well. Yeah, I'm a very verbal human being and I'm very visual at the same time. And I'm just utilizing the different mediums that I can play into. And for personal work and and commercial work, I can bring the aesthetic sensibility into a commercial brief, but also into my personal work. So I think just there are different mediums that inform one another. I don't see it as like these two segregated (laughs) parts of my life. Well, it helps probably to be out of the art world bubble 
that artists often find themselves in when they live in, in the art world capitals, the New York or London, in that respect, because you're looked at differently and you're always competing with the other artists. You're trying to get recognized. You're trying to get shows. You're trying to be yes, bought by yes. collectors. But I've always, I've never, and this is something I'm very thankful for. I was born on an island and that made me very allergic to islands. And by this, I mean anything that feels insular, I do not want to be immersed in it fully. I always keep one leg outside. So the art world can feel very much like an island. So I have no interest in just fully immersing myself in that world. I still want to be able to float in other spaces. It's important to find contrast. I never went to art school and I never went to ad school. And I ended up working in these worlds and tapping into them. But I surrounded myself by contrasting environments or like education. I think that has informed the way in which I <laughs> interpret like the world and the way that I create. It doesn't come from these linear journeys within these worlds. When I ended up in the commercial world, I am usually the only one who didn't go to advertising school, for example. And if I ended up in an artistic endeavor, I'm like, no, I did not go to art school. And for the longest time, I didn't call myself an artist. So I prefer being somewhere more nebulous in between. When did you start to think of yourself as an artist? What happened? If I'm completely honest, like have problems with calling myself an artist. I think I respect the word too much, maybe. I also think that a lot of artists who are artists don't call themselves that. They just do what they do. I definitely don't want to use it. I respect the term. I don't want to like wave it like a flag, to be honest. But I do remember the time in which I couldn't deny anymore that there is definitely a deep, intrinsic, artistic nature within me. And I think that happened in the last, I think, five years or four years. Actually, if I'm very honest, the more I owned up to my own femininity or like feminine energy, the more I came to terms with the fact that I have an artistic nature. So they, they both happen at the same time. I think I had to own up my sensibilities in order to really admit that I feel things in a very deep, profound way, maybe more than I thought I did before. I know the feeling in a way, as even as a writer, we all have these, you know, heroes and we always have them in our mind. Oh, well, I'm never as good as whoever, you know what I mean? So that's a real writer. And am I really a writer or yeah. not a writer? And then, you know, when you have to fill out your tax form <laughs> and it asks for profession. Yes. What do you put down? <laughs> now you do artist, I bet, right? Well, it was funny because it always depended on like a position because a lot of the times, you know, living abroad and then I needed a visa. And then it was always interesting to see the titles that they would put in the visa. It was always fascinating for the diplomats at embassies to come across someone whose title on the visa was just the word creative or, oh, okay, <laughs> like, yeah. you know, and they were like, what do you do? What is this? I've never met such a thing. The last one, they just really could not find words. And they were like, I'm just going to put artists. Like, 
this is just too abstract. Um, so they just put artists, yes. <laughs> so they made the decision for you. Oh, yeah. And it was like a linguistic limitation because it had to be in Spanish in this case. And they were like, no, we're just not going to put an English term, like copywriters in English word, for example. So they were like, no, let's sum it up with artist. <laughs> I'm going to get to your work in a minute, but I couldn't uh, let you go without telling me why you're going to Barcelona. Because I feel like you're a very international person. We'll talk about your trips to Africa, for example, where you spent a lot of time, it looks like. Why did you pick Barcelona now? What is it about it or you that makes it a destination right now? Well, I'm going to be studying there. I'm going to be doing a master's. Ah. Yes. So In art? It's uh, in photography and design. So that is what's driving me to the South. As I mentioned, lots of your work was shot in Africa. And I'd like to know a little bit about how you got there and what drew you there and how you got started shooting there. Well, one of the first projects that I did in Africa was this project called Q&A, which stands for Queer in Africa. And I went to different countries in East Africa, specifically Rwanda, Tanzania, and Kenya. And I wanted to document LGBTQI people living in these countries because, as you might know, there's a lot of discrimination against LGBTQI people in many parts of the African continent. And to me, the LGBTQI community is very close and dear to my heart. I just really wanted to learn more about it. But I think in my work, something shifted, I think, about three years ago, I would say. And I will rewind a little bit back to explain what drew me to the continent. I was always very curious about it. I'm a biracial person. My dad is full Afro-Caribbean descent, so he's a black man. And in Dominican society, there's a lot of internalized racism, actually. And there's no embracing of any Afro-heritage. It's very much denied. I always felt curiosity towards it and to explore that, to see it in an environment that was not demonized or silenced or just erased from the history books, but also from society. So, yeah, I was always very curious to go to the mother continent. And when I went there the first time, I found so much beauty and it's so vast. There was so much uncharted territory even for my own fantasies of it and I took this picture of these boys in Senegal and there was a kid from Senegal who wrote to me and he told me thank you so much for portraying my country in such a beautiful way and he told me that it made him look at his own country in a different way and that really moved me and it touched me and from that moment on I decided that I was just really tired of all the negative and tragic narratives that historically have been used to depict Africa. And I just wanted to focus on highlighting beauty. I made a decision <laughs> to only focus on beauty. I was like, I'm going to merge art and documentary like photography, and I'm going to find a middle ground and we can blend the two and tell maybe a serious story, but through very beautiful aesthetics. And I also just wanted to elevate people. I wanted the person in front of me to feel like I'm 
portraying them in a beautiful, dignified, empowering way. That was a very conscious decision. So every trip that I made throughout Africa, my goal was to look for these sometimes like deeper and more serious stories, but they were going to be portrayed with aesthetic minimalism and with a little bit of fashion and with artistry. So I had no interest in documenting anything in a literal sense, or also I had no interest in adding to this rhetoric of poverty, which is traditionally the the only narrative that we get from Africa. So that's what drove me also to go there. I was like, I'm going to change these narratives. I made it kind of like a personal mission. So you took your subjects, which uh, I guess you approached individually because often you shoot in groups as well. Do these people know each other? Are you a people person that could easily walk up to someone and start, you know, telling them your story? (laughs) I'm quite, I'm quite an ambivert. So I am very extroverted. I'm very good with people, I would say. (laughs) I wouldn't be able to to take the pictures I take if I wasn't able to make a connection with people, even despite of a language barrier a lot of times. And a lot of times I'm traveling by myself. I'm going to these countries on my own and I reach out to organizations a lot of times. For example, when I was documenting LGBTQI people, then I approached different LGBTQI groups in these countries prior to going. And when I shot people with albinism, it was the same. I met an activist in Tanzania when I was there. And then that led me to him introducing me to some other people living with albinism in the country. And then that led to another connection. So it's a lot of people work because I photograph people. So it has to be people work. It needs to be, it's very important for me to build trust, but also to create a super intimate space when I'm shooting someone. So it takes a lot of emotional energy, I would say. And, and your part as well as the, the subjects as well, because they have to trust you completely. A hundred percent. For me, I always say the first two minutes or the first minute when I'm faced with a person that I'm interested in shooting, and I have a minute for them to trust me. And then after that, anything can happen. But there needs to be trust. There needs to be a lot of respect and a lot of trust. And sometimes I meet my subjects on the street. Then we exchange numbers. I show them my work. They also are very honored and excited once they know that my intentions are to portray them in a beautiful light. A lot of them are skeptical of foreigners who come and just take National Geographic-like pictures of a starving child. (laughs) So they're very excited when they see that that's not what I'm about and that's not my intention. And a lot of times I am with a local who can help me build trust through language or through having a connection to the to the culture. I'm thinking particularly right now of these two series that you did of men called Cloaked is one and Men in Water series. And you say there that your work there aims to portray men, particularly black men, through a more sensible and nuanced lens because black men have been historically hypersexualized or reduced to their physical strength by westernized patriarchal systems. So just to continue, I'm interested in portraying them as complex, multifaceted, vulnerable beings. So is this what you tell them when you meet them? 
Or is this uh, just what you're thinking and then, you know, you just tell them you want to take a beautiful, sensitive photo? I definitely do not say in that more, (laughs) you know, poetic verbose. (laughs) I do tell them that, for example, that series specifically started as a series around men and water, right? And then that is in itself the first story. It's a story of people in their relationship with water. The story of how water can disarm a person and how we can talk about a person, especially a man's relationship to nature. So it starts from that conversation and I don't want to over-politicize it either when I'm talking to my subjects, you know, and a lot of times it also, again, it depends on, sometimes there is a linguistic barrier, you know, and sometimes I think the word speaks for itself. When I show them my work, they can sense what is intended. They can see it as a bigger body of work as a collection. I think sometimes a picture is truly worth more than a thousand words. So I make sure to show them my work. And then it's completely up to them to want to be part of it or not. I never take people's, for example, numbers. Like they reach out to me. I present myself, I introduce myself. And I'm like, do you want to be part of this? And then it's up to them. Are the men, you say, that you sometimes approach randomly on the street or introduced to, I'm thinking about this particular project of the hypersexualized. So are you looking for someone who's just has that persona physically present as part of their lifestyle gang world or whatever the context may be, and then try to then take that and flip it into some situation where they look more soft and and gentle and no longer the physical embodiment of, you know, this sort of idea of what the black man in Africa looks like. Or does it really matter? Or are they gay? Is that partly what you're looking at too? No, unless it's a specific project, for example, when I said albinos or LGBTQI, that's a specific demographic. For the men series, I'm very directive and led by my gut. When I'm attracted to someone, I'm just attracted to someone. Some of them are naturally, let's say, they are not over muscular, or some of them are a little bit just thinner and have a, a more feminine aura to them. It depends. I just, I'm attracted to who I'm attracted to. I, there's no regulation in that sense. Or, and I'm not intentionally looking for like a, a type. No. If anything, I would steer away. Personally, most of the time I would steer away from. Ah, that should be your next project. You have to go where you're, you know. Maybe. Maybe I should you, do something with like bodybuilders. Yeah, where you don't want to go. Yeah. Do you, when it comes to the work of other photographers or artists, who do you look to? Who inspires you? I think different artists. I would say... You mean photographically speaking? Yes. Not necessarily uh, only photographically, but yes. I mean, it could be filmmakers, it could be musicians, it could be fashion designers, people that get you excited with their work. First, I'll choose a director, <laughs> film director. I love Pedro Almodovar. Mm, I think he's incredible. I think his way of utilizing not only a storytelling, but color and abstraction, but with a lot of emotion and the way that he utilizes music and, and also queerness. So I love his work. Yeah, he's brilliant. I also love Andre Wagner. 
was a photographer in New York City. For me, he's like a modern day, like Vivian Meyer, but even more raw. And he's actually a friend of mine. I met him in New York when I was living there and I was much younger. And he has just grown into this beautiful artist. He only shoots black and white photographs all over the US, but specifically New York City. And he just has a way, his work feels like it was taken in 1930, but is taken now. He has like an old soul and an old lens and he captures human beings in such a a raw way. I love Vivian Meyer as well. I love her work. I actually know Pedro but over the years I've interviewed him several times. Yeah. I have and I just saw that he made his first American movie or English language film but it was only 30 minutes and they had it at the New York Film Festival. It's with Tilda Swinton and it's basically a 30 minute monologue of hers. It's kind of insane but beautiful and to your point about this color and set design and and sensibility aesthetics he does all of that for me as well. Yes. He is Saint Peter for me. Like <laughs> we'll say Saint Almodovar in my book. <laughs> when you go to Spain, uh, you should try to visit him in Madrid. Yes. Be like, just knock on his door. I'm like, I'm here. Well, you know, you never know, right? He's he's the kind of guy that might just say, sure, come up. He definitely loves an assertive woman, so I can like <laughs> I can provide that. So. Okay, good. You might wind up in one of his films as well. <laughs> Who knows? He needs a leading woman with big hair. Definitely. This should get that's it, and a camera. And, and you speak Spanish too, right? Yes. So I'm basically his new muse. Okay. Just wait for it. <laughs> I'm glad we set it all up here today. Yes. So it's really cool. But uh, tell me a little bit about your years in New York. What was that like? When was that? That was when? That's a great question. <laughs> right. um, I moved there in 2008 and I lived there until 2014. So the four first years I was in college in a little liberal arts school, a little bit upstate. And then I graduated, then I moved to the city, then I started working there. <sighs> Worked. Did what? What did you do? Do you know this fashion brand called Black Denim? B-L-K-D-N-M. Yes, I do. Yes. So my first job out was of- Was that Johan Lindenberg? Yeah. It functioned like a startup. So it felt everything was done in-house. So it was like its own creative lab and it was very guerrilla style. And you had to, you know, everything was just done in-house. So I was his personal assistant, but then I was the PR and marketing person's assistant. And then that's when he became a photographer. So then I curated all of his photo work back then and edited it. So I so he was shooting the ads, right? Yes. Right. I know Johan too, by the way. So. Yes. So then that was like, yeah, my first job out of college, which was pretty cool. And you were making the scene of New York then on the, to the fashion shows and all that exposed to all of that stuff? Yes. But I also, as I said before, I'm not very interested in the little world. So <laughs> I like, I had access to it. Yes. I, I accessed it. I accessed what I wanted to access. I did not be like 
become fully immersed in the fa- I have a love and hate relationship with the fashion world and fashion photography, to be honest. So I was interested in what, in that time, I think Black Denim was trying to portray, there was very little editing, for example, in the photographs that like they were trying to portray the models in a more raw way, show a bit more emotion. And I was interested in that, in that foundation of fashion photography and trying to create fashion that was a little bit more timeless and not based on trends. I think they saw themselves a little bit like the anarchists of Soho in a way. There was something interested in that. I have respect for the fashion world and fashion photography, but it's a love and hate relationship. So what did you do with your time? Where did you hang out? What was your scene like? What was my scene? <laughs> well, New York has so many scenes. I, that's what I love about it. <laughs> I spent time in Brooklyn and in Harlem and outside of and New York, even though I worked in Soho. So yeah, I think a mixture of many things, a mixture of jazz bars. I love going by myself to jazz bars. It's one of my favorite things in the entire world. Because <laughs> nobody cities. else will go with you, probably. Yeah, no, but I, I have a very old soul in that sense. No, but also when I told you I am an absolute ambivert, I travel by myself, I go to the cinema by myself, and I go to jazz bars by myself. I love that about New York City. It's a place where you can go to a restaurant, have a five-course meal on your own, and nobody will question why you're doing that. So, and I, it's something I take with me wherever I go. I like, well, I've done that in Tokyo. Like it's, and I love that. It creates a sense of autonomy in oneself to do what you want to do. So that I love about New York. I miss eating in New York. <laughs> yeah, well, we all do now because yes, 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 mess. yes. But that sense of, I think that culinary culture of New York, of, and by culinary, I mean this sense, this respect and appreciation for what sitting down means and eat with people, and still in a metropolitan context. And by that, I mean from a, a food truck to an upscale restaurant. And of course, going to museums and art shows in New York. That was very much part of that as well. And when you were here, I saw that you had the piece where you gave cameras to people who were basically living on the street for the most part as a project. Yes, that was actually my... That's cool that I told you that I went to in Stockholm. You have to do an, well, an assignment, basically that they give you and they give you a brief. I don't remember what the brief was, but this was the way in which I interpreted it. I just bought disposable cameras and I just handed them to mostly homeless people in New York or, well, homeless, but also disabled or partially like homeless. I wanted them to, to just <laughs> be the ones in charge of the camera again, because it doesn't matter how much of an empathetic photographer you are, you're still directing someone, or if not directing, you're still framing someone's story. So I just wanted them to have that agency and just tell the story that they wanted to tell in like 24 hours of their lives. Dude, do you consider yourself an activist? I get that question a lot. <laughs> and I am not very fond of that question. <laughs> I don't see myself as an activist because I think an activist should be first and foremost 
as objective as possible. I'm still an artist, so art at the end of the day is subjective. And I want to remain portraying the stories I want to portray in a subjective way. I'm interpreting what I see. I think that I can be socially involved and definitely contribute to create social awareness. But at the end of the day, I'm doing that through my voice, which is a subjective voice is my interpretation. <laughs> that question bothers me a little bit because there's like a tendency for people to politicize the work that is made by anyone <laughs> who is either a female or like a POC. It's like, if you are <laughs> involved in any way and as if because I'm portraying certain communities that that is immediately politicized or because I myself am a female, then my work must be politicized because of that. So I, I am involved, but I'm not an activist. I am an artist who cares about social awareness. Denise Ariana Perez, thank you so much for being my guest today. I really enjoyed learning more about you and your practice. And uh, good luck in Barcelona. Let's stay in touch. Thank you. It has been a pleasure. And thank you for having me. Bye. You've been listening to Light Culture. You can find us at shopverb.com, Light Culture, or at Light Culture Podcast. Thanks again to Burb. You can follow them at shopverb on Instagram. And don't forget to subscribe to and review the show. If you would like to get in touch, reach out to me directly at David Reporting. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.